Today's sermon text is from Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. I imagine that uh, some of you know the story about, it was called the Christmas Truce of 1914. Uh, the First World War had just begun, probably a few months before. The carnage and the devastation was already uh, quite significant. And a truce was called beginning on Christmas Eve through the day following Christmas Day. And it was that evening as the shells stopped falling and the guns stopped rattling that... Uh, there were Christmas carols being sung in the trenches from the British and the French side. And correspondingly, there were Christmas hymns being sung on the German side. That evening into the night, next day the sun rises and one man uh, has the courage to walk out into that no man zone. It's the land between the trenches where, where the fighting was taking place. And soon many followed him. Germans and British and French. And as they got out there, they began to speak and they showed pictures of one another's family. They shared rations. It was a time where they began to even play soccer. In fact, from the diary of one German infantryman, he writes, the English brought a soccer ball from the trenches. And pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvelously wonderful and yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus, Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. It was an amazing event. The papers across the world spoke about it. It was called the Miracle on the Western Front. And yet, sadly, we know it only lasted a, a, a short time before the fighting began again. And great carnage and, and devastation followed. It shows us, though, that, that we do want a peace. We want peace. We want peace in our, in our homes, in our marriages, in our family. We want peace in our culture. We want peace in our own lives. And yet we live in this outraged culture. We, we are quickly outraged, uh, whether it be on the road, the way people drive, or whether it be in the political situation, polarizing things in life. What will bring about a peace for us? Well, the answer simply is that it must come from God. God has to bring a peace for us. This is really the story of Micah. And Micah is one of the minor prophets. The minor prophets, I mean, they're just smaller in size. Uh, they just don't have as many chapters. And, and, and they really follow all the 12 minor prophets, kind of follow the same theme. They have a word of judgment, a word of gloom, really, that God is going to bring about judgment on sin, but it's always followed by a word of hope, 
a, a word of promise, of hope, that God will yet do a work. And you always see those themes in the Minor Prophets, and you see them here, not just in Micah, but you see them actually in our text. You're going to see in 5.1 where God is promising judgment. He said the judgment will fall due to our sin. And yet judgment is followed by the gracious promise of God that there is hope. There is hope. In the midst of their gloom, there'll be glory. And that's what we see here. So we're going to see the sermon really in two pieces. One is trying to understand why the gloom. God, what is the gloom in our world about? And yet, what is the glory that he promises to us? And then I'll try to pull out some implications from that. So look with me in verse 1. This is kind of understanding the gloom of it. Uh, you heard, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us, and with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Well, what does this mean? Well, well, God is speaking here, and God is saying basically uh, in Micah uh, that because of the sins of the people that they're going to be militarily defeated. That expression of striking the, the cheek of the judge of Israel, that's the king of Israel, that, that there'll be humiliation upon the nation uh, because they're going to be destroyed. And the most likely there's some debate about it, but probably it's Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Uh, at this time of writing, he had probably already taken the ten northern tribes in northern Israel and probably taken them into captivity. He turns his sights on the southern kingdom, makes it all the way to Bethlehem, uh, but, but God is warning that God is bringing judgment upon the nation because of their sin. If you were to read Micah later today, you would find in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6, you would find that he's like an attorney and he's bringing an indictment against the people. And he's saying, this is what God has against you. And he begins to marshal the evidence. He goes, you're idolaters. He goes, you take bribes. Uh, you oppress the poor. You're greedy. Uh, the priests... They are criticized because they're promiscuous. The shepherds, the leaders of Israel, they're not caring for the people. They're taking bribes, even shedding blood for profit. And so God finally says, I have enough. I'm bringing judgment through the nation of Assyria on the people of Judah. That's the warning of God. He's bringing judgment because of their sin. Now, does that seem strange to you? Does it seem strange in our day and age to think that God judges sin? Uh, do you question the morality of God? That, you know, who is God kind of bringing this judgment on sin, on decisions that people are making for themselves? I want you to consider this, that God brings judgment on sin because of the devastating consequences our sin has in our lives. I mean, you can understand for a minute if, if you were to have uh, heard of the story of some man who committed a great atrocity against an innocent person, and brought devastation to their family. And they've been apprehended, they've been caught, they've been put in jail. There's a sense of satisfaction. It's not a joy there because of the devastation that remains in the family, but you're satisfied that judgment has been brought to evil. But what about other sins? Shouldn't God judge other sins? I mean, sins of greed and anger, bitterness, lust. I mean, think about the devastation it brings in the family's lives. Puts people in financial ruin, spousal abuse, child abuse. I mean, you think about it for a minute. Sin isn't done in a vacuum. Our sins aren't somehow self-contained. Our sins have outward effect. The guy that wants to have a couple extra drinks after work, he's putting people in hazard way. I mean, the person that wants to steal from the office and 
uh, steal either in terms of time or goods, he's affecting the bottom line profit of the business. Or the student who doesn't want to participate in the group project, the other students have to bear his loss and what he's not doing. I mean, think about it. Our, our sin is not done in a vacuum. God judges sin because it brings about a ruination to his own creation. God created us for his glory and our joy, and sin works its ruinous ways, and God says at one point, I've had enough. I mean, don't you think really at the end of the day, don't you think we need God to judge sin? I mean, don't we need him? I mean, what would we say about God if he didn't judge sin? Uh, so, wouldn't we consider it an evil for someone to be indifferent to the ongoing abuse of a child? And we did nothing about it. Yeah, I knew about it. And we did nothing. Wouldn't we say that they're evil? Doesn't sin need to be judged? I mean, when you get slighted at the office or someone speaks about you in an incorrect, maybe even a harsh way, don't you want your place? Don't you want to balance the scales? Don't you want to you know, make clear, hey, no, 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 this is what really happened. There's something inside you that kind of wells up. says, I want to straighten that. I want to tell you the rest of the story kind of thing. Well, what about our own sins? The sins we've committed. I mean, admittedly, it's easier for me to identify the sins in everybody else besides myself. But if I have enough courage and I don't justify and I don't excuse myself, my... I need to consider that maybe my sins have brought about pain and hardship on others around me. My sins have had collateral damage. What do I do with those? What do you do with those? Each one of us here has affected others in the negative because of their sins. What do you do with those sins? Does God judge those sins the same way? This is really on the minds of the people listening to Micah. It should be in our minds unless you unless you're thinking that you have had no effect on others because of your sins, why should God overlook you or me when he did not overlook them? How do you account for that? What ought you to do? That's the question that ought to be on our minds, if we're honest with ourselves. Now, we are experts at justifying, excusing. You see this in the garden, really. You see the peace that God brought with the man and the woman. Of course, they weren't satisfied with their station in life. They wanted more. They distrusted the goodness of God. They thought he was holding back something from them. And so they made a play on his position. And they did not want to live according to his word. They distrusted his goodness. And so what happens? To the peaceful situation that they enjoyed came conflict. Conflict claim, but between the husband and wife, Adam and Eve, they, they turned on each other. They turned on each other like rabid dogs. And then they, they hide from God, the one with whom they walked and enjoyed. And then within a generation, there's murder in the home. You see the peacefulness of God and his creation now has been absolutely ruined. Why? Because of sin. So what do we do? Well, this is kind of where Micah leaves us this moment in verse one that, that we're left with this idea of what do we do how will we stand before god on that day all of our hands have been stained we've affected others well thankfully micah doesn't stop with this word of judgment this word of gloom remember now the gloom is going to be followed by the glory and you see that because in verse two you see but you O bethlehem ephrathah 
But you, there's a change, there's a contrast he's making. And what he's doing here is he's introducing a change in direction. We're now moving from gloom to glory. We're going to move from tears to laughter. We're going to move from sorrow over sin to satisfaction in what he'll do for us. This is the change you see. And so he moves from gloom to glory. Now, let me explain the glory of God's promise. Because what he's doing is he's going to bring forth a ruler. He's going to bring forth one to save. He's going to bring one to bring peace to the relationship as it's been torn apart from God and with each other. And you see this in verse 2. In verse 2, you really see the nature of this Messiah. You see the nature of the one that will come to deliver. Look with me. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, now look at this with me, because what God is doing here is God speaking in this passage. And he's saying, a ruler will come forth. But did you see what he's For me. God is saying, he's coming for me. I'm sending him. He's doing my business. He's my servant, and he's going to come, and he's going to do the work that I have planned for him. So this Messiah is going to be sent not just from God, but for God. And he's coming forth, he says, from Bethlehem. Now that ought to cause you to kind of shake your head. He's a ruler, but he's coming from Bethlehem. Now, Micah is clear in distinguishing this is Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, there's another Bethlehem, actually, in the northern part of the country, in the land of Zebulun. He's specific enough to say, no, this town, Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's about six miles away from Jerusalem. But what shocks us is, why isn't he coming from Jerusalem? You know, you notice what he says. This is too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, this Bethlehem was so small, it was so insignificant, that when Joshua lists the towns, he doesn't even mention it. It's not even on the map. It's a no-name town. And yet God is sending forth his ruler from the insignificant town of Bethlehem. When he says that it's too little, that's a negative word. It means weak or despised. It was used of Gideon. You know, he's a no-name guy from a no-tribe guy. It's really a condemnation of the town. So why would God do that? He wants us to see that this Messiah, when he comes, he'll be marked by a massive humility, a massive humility. These humble beginnings, this ruler won't come from Jerusalem, it'll come from Bethlehem. Now, some of you may be, you've studied your Bibles and you say, yeah, Tom, but this Bethlehem, you know, King David came from there. Well, think about that for a minute. He did come from there, no doubt about it. But think about David. When Samuel came to Jesse, David's father, and he wanted to anoint one of his sons to be king, Jesse called all of his sons, but he didn't call David. David was in the field. Can you imagine your dad being asked for all of his sons and you're not called? How would you feel? I imagine fairly insignificant. Would it, would it humiliate you even? I think it would. The picture he's showing us here is God is bringing forth the Messiah in, an, in a radically humble way, marked by just a massive humility. And yet with his humility, you see the glory of him. Look at what it says. 
that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This could mean uh, that it's in human history, but, but really hundreds and hundreds of years before. I don't think so. The same words used in Psalm 90.12, where it speaks about God being from everlasting. I think he's saying that the humility of this Messiah will be matched with the glory of this Messiah, who has known no beginning and knows no end. He has no days. Which would make sense, because last week we read in Isaiah 9, he is the wonderful counselor, he is the mighty God, he is the everlasting Father. He has no ends. This Messiah that will come, his nature is marked by humility and glory. That's the nature of the one that will come that will deliver us. But look at his ministry with me in verse 4. Look at the nature of his ministry. It says in verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So we have the gloom of verse 1, and all of us really ought to feel the darkness of that gloom. Because all of us have been stained by our own sin. We've committed a collateral damage in the lives of others. What will we do? Well, we're introduced to the glory, the glory of this son who is marked by both humility and glory. But look at his ministry. It says he will stand and shepherd his people. The great thing about this ruler is he's not looking to be served. He's coming to serve. He will stand. He's engaged. He's not going to minister from a couch of ease. He's going to stand and be engaged in shepherding the people. He will lead the people in the strength of the Lord, means his power has no end. Now, when you hear of a shepherd, uh, that's not just a nice metaphor to kind of picture who this Messiah might be. You know, throughout the history of Israel, the shepherds failed. The leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel failed time and time again. Read Ezekiel, read Micah, read Zechariah. They failed time and time again. Let me give you one example of how they failed from Ezekiel chapter 34, he says, Son of man, so God's talking to Ezekiel, and he says, Thus says the Lord. In other words, Ezekiel confront the shepherds of Israel. He says, Say to the shepherds of Israel, You who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harsh, harshness you have ruled them. See, the shepherding and the ruling are there together, just like in Micah, so here. So we see that this Messiah is going to be radically different than the shepherds of Israel. He's going to be serving and not being served. He's going to give his life. He's going to be offering himself for the benefit of the sheep. He's coming to lead. This is the Messiah that will come. He will come like a shepherd to save. But there's more. Look at the second half of verse 4. Because he says, they will dwell secure. And he will be great to the ends of the earth. So this shepherd won't just come to save, but to, to safely secure us to the very end. That he's going to save us and he's going to secure us. He will keep us safe. He will go and pursue the lost sheep. He will pursue the wandering sheep. This is a different shepherd. This is altogether different. He's one that you can rest in, that you can find comfort in. I could read to you later on in Ezekiel 34, when God brings a condemnation against the shepherds of Israel, here's what he says to the people. He says, thus says the Lord. I myself 
will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. I'll rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered. I will bring them out of the peoples. I will gather them from the countries. I will bring them to their own land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. This is God now assuming the role of shepherd. He's saying my Messiah will be as I, as a shepherd to save his sheep. But the sheep doesn't just serve us by saving. He doesn't just secure us, but he also makes peace for us. Look at the beginning of verse 5. He says, and, I, and he will be, he will be their peace. He shall be their peace. Now, now think about it. What an interesting promise to give that this Messiah that we're to be looking for, he's going to be a shepherd, he's going to save, he's going to serve, and he's going to secure peace. But he's giving this promise on the eve of a devastating military loss when eventually the people will be deported to Babylon. And God gives this promise. What would, what would you have believed if you were there in Micah's day? You, you, you've been told that everything is going to go ruinous. The Assyrians are coming, followed by the Babylonians shortly after. And yet I am to wait for one. It's been promised by God that a ruler, a shepherd from of old, will come and deliver. Takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? I'm sure they wondered, will God keep his promise? Did he keep his promise? Well, we know that he did. We read in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, uh, let me read to you from that chapter. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, because he was a psychopath, and they were afraid of him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, or that word Messiah, uh, where the Christ was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of, of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A few verses later in Matthew, verse 9, he says, After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. Behold, the star they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So what you see here, let me just kind of create the scene. These wise men, probably astrologers or priests from Babylon, maybe they had heard the message from Daniel generations before, kind of trickle down, uh, but they understood that the star was the sign from God that the child, the king of the Jews, would be born. They see that, they follow it. They naturally go to Jerusalem because that's where rulers usually are and they meet King Herod. Now, King Herod was a king, but he was a king, a puppet king. He was installed by Rome. Notice he was not a king for God. 
Remember, the promise in Micah is one will come forth for me. He wasn't for God. And when they asked him about this newborn king, they got, you know, he got scared because his kingdom all of a sudden became on shaky ground. And of course, what does Herod do? He calls together the chief priests and the religious leaders. And he says, where's this Christ to be born? Now, do you notice, they don't delay. They don't have to go to some back library and pull out some manual and try to dust it off. We're not sure what that means. No, they knew exactly where it was. It was Micah 5.2. God made a promise in Micah 5.2 in the middle of the 8th century. And here, they knew exactly. What does that mean? They knew it was a Messianic promise. They knew. They were waiting. They expected that God would fulfill that promise. And here he had. And so they told him. That's where the Christ is to be born. Now, what's interesting is the response to this promise fulfilled. God made a promise. He fulfilled a promise. You have Herod, of course, in anger. He goes and orders the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem. But then you have the, the chief priests. They have this kind of weird ambivalence. We don't have any knowledge that they sent anyone, checked it out. I, I don't understand. But they just seem ambivalent to the whole thing. But then you have the wise men, and of course, they worship him. They adore him. They're thankful. They're exceedingly joy-filled over the coming of Christ. So what you have here, and Micah made a promise in the middle of the 8th century that this ruler, this shepherd, will come and shepherd his people. And, and he will secure them. He'll gather them. He'll secure them. And he'll be their peace. He'll make peace for them. The very peace that was bringing the conflict in the gloom of verse 1, he is now going to bring a glorious peace through himself. That's the beautiful thing of Christmas, is God kept his promise. God made a promise and he kept his promise. And he delivers us from the threat of our own sin by being our peace. Let me just give you some implications to take away from this. So I want you thinking with me about the nature of Christmas for us today. Uh, the first is this, that Jesus, when you look at Jesus, you see that he came to display God's glory through his humility. He came to display God's glory through his humility. It's in the contrast you see God's glory. The contrast of the greatness of Christ the King coming from such humble origins. The, the beauty of Christ the Shepherd coming from a no-name town. This idea of, of the greatness of Christ, he should have been met with dignitaries and the only, the only people or things around his birth were probably maybe some animals. You know, in, instead of inviting the nations to come and, and welcome the arrival of this king from God, it's just announced to shepherds, lowly shepherds. You see the irony there, God's glory is revealed through humility. God will be glorified through the things that we forsake. God does the most with the least. You think about it. Through Christ's ministry, you have the woman who gave two mites, two pennies, two copper coins to the temple treasury. She's held up as an example of glory when the rich are dumping their bucketfuls into the treasury aren't even noticed. Or, or you think about the little boy with with a couple fish and some loaves, as opposed to the disciples that should have had faith to believe that Christ could feed them. The, the boy, the, the humble little boy with no knowledge of anything, has faith to reveal the glory of God. Or the centurion, whose faith said Jesus marveled over. 
in the land of Israel, no faith. This Roman centurion marvels the Lord with faith. Or the prostitute who's weeping on the feet of the Lord, she evidences great faith while Simon the Pharisee is standing there kind of aloof from Jesus. What he's saying here is simply this, that for those of you, you feel broken, you feel insignificant, you feel looked over, you feel like you don't have the gifts and the strength of other people, you don't have the face, the body, the wisdom, the experience, the opportunity, the place, and you just kind of write yourself out of God's script. God will be glorified through you. God uses the weak and the humble to do his greatest work. We hate weakness, and yet he shows his strength in it. You know, we live in this celebrity culture. Everybody wants a name. You know, Facebook, for all that it may do good, it, it, it do well, it, it, it's a place where we're, we're almost in competition putting ourselves forward. How many likes did that post get? Who's looking at what I've done? Who's reading what I wrote? And yet here it is in the humility of Bethlehem that he will be glorified. The way up is down. That's the irony of the kingdom. Humble yourselves, he says. That's the takeaway for us. Humble yourselves and God will lift you up. And you want him to lift you up. We don't want to lift ourselves up. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were ever wise according to worldly standards. In other words, he's talking to the church. He goes, you didn't come from the wise group, at least in terms of the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It sounds like a real notable group, doesn't it? He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that we think are, so that no man would boast before God. So the takeaway for Christmas for us is, let us display God's glory through our humility. Choose the lower path. Seek to grow in self-forgetfulness. If you've written yourself off because you're just not good enough, confess that as false humility. Ask God to use you in the place and the and the station that you're at doesn't matter the level of education, social position, beauty, age. God can use you for his purposes as he pleases. And I thank him for that. I love Psalm 113. He says he stoops down and he lifts up the poor from the ash heap and he sits them with princes. Why? Because it brings glory to his name. So humble yourselves and may he be glorified in your life. The second thing we see here is that Jesus came to show the faithfulness of God. Listen, God is faithful to his promises. He said that a ruler will come forth, a shepherd will be born, and he was. God keeps his promises. That's the takeaway for us. God will keep his promises. All the promises that he litters throughout the scriptures, he is trustworthy. That's your takeaway. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that the promise that he gave was in the midst of darkness. It was in the midst of gloom. They're about to be crushed by the Assyrians, followed by being crushed by the Babylonians. And he tells them, in the darkest of the night, I will save you. Why does he do that? I think he does that because it's in the most difficult of times when our pain is the highest, when our trials are the greatest, when we're struggling the most, 
That is when we see truly how much we trust in the promises of God. It, it, it's the hardest time to trust, but it really is the, it's the best revealing of where I stand with God. This isn't meant to be a discouraging time. This is a revealing time. Okay, where am I? I want to know. We always tend to overgrade our own faithfulness and the strength that we have in the promises of God. We're like Peter. Hey, I'll never deny you. First trouble comes, he's out the door. And many times that's the same for us. And he's bringing the promises to us. Oftentimes, many of you, this is a dark time. Christmas is very hard. Holidays are very difficult. You may be walking through medical issues, personal issues, financial. What he's saying is, he is trustworthy. Now, when I say we trust in the promises, that means a couple things. I don't, too many of us ignore the promises. We don't even look at them. We don't even consider them the diamonds that they are. God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's a kind of a nice one. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, drink, wear. Your heavenly father knows you need these things. That's decent in this day and age. That's pretty good. I know you is another promise. No one shall snatch you out of my hand. The promises are given to us as like life preservers in high seas to hang on to, to trust him. But you must believe. This is where I'm calling if you're a Christian here. There is, we don't want to presume upon God and just say, well, they're there for me. No, you have to believe them. I'm calling you to actually put your faith. No, if you're having financial trouble, you know, Carol and I, back in the day, we'd look at, no, I don't have to worry about this. We're not going to worry because he tells me not to worry. You know, in Romans 15, 13, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Who doesn't want that? We all do, right? But he says, in believing. We're called to believe. We're called to raise the sails so the Spirit fills them and we run by faith. So we're called to believe. There are promises. Let me encourage you in this Christmas season, think about the promises that have been given to you, particularly if you're in struggling and tr in trying times. If you don't know what promises to turn to, then go to another member of this church and ask him. Say, I'm really struggling here. Where, where is there a promise of God? Remember, he gives promises to us, especially in the dark times, to reveal to us the level of our faith, that we might repent and move back in faith to him. Okay, third would be that Jesus has come to shepherd, to serve as a shepherd. He's come to serve us. Now, this is, there is an irony there, right? I mean, sh rulers don't tend to serve, right? They tend to be served. That's what kings do. Kings have servants. We don't, servants don't have servants. Jesus is coming as a ruler to serve us, to serve us as a shepherd as a shepherd to lay down his life. Now, Jesus in his ministry speaks to this clearly in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus isn't, again, adopting this metaphor of a shepherd just because it's kind of a homey thing. He knows he's walking out the promise made by Micah. He knows Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the good shepherd who's been sent from God to save. He's come to save us, to lay down his life. 
Jesus had no sin. He had no gloom. He didn't fear that he would have to stand before his father with the collateral damage of his sins. He had no sin. No, he's come as a shepherd to serve us by taking upon himself our sin that he would lay down his life. He would bear the wrath of God as a substitute for us so that we don't have to face. That's why to believe in Jesus is to pass out of judgment into life. The gloom for us over our sin, the light has shined. Christ has come as our shepherd and laid down his life. Rejoice over that with me. If, you know, this is how we become Christians, really, in a word. You don't become a Christian because you come here or you're born into a Christian family. You become a Christian by recognizing, I have, a, I, have a, I have a debt, a load of debt that I cannot pay. I need one to deliver me. I need a shepherd to lead me out of the darkness into the light. I need one to even lay down his life for me. And by faith, I will follow him. That's what it means to become a Christian. But what's remarkable about this passage when he says, I know them, I know them. You know, this idea, as a staff, we read this book, Known by God by Brian Rossner, a very good book. Um, and, and he really brings up this uh, idea. The whole book is kind of teasing out this idea. Uh, what does it mean to be known by God? It means to belong. It's not that God knows you like he knows the trials you're going through and all the issues in your life. He does know all those things. But to be known by God means to belong to God. It means to be a son or daughter of God. It means that even though you may forget him, he will not forget you. This is the fashioning of a new identity, that the Christian has a new identity. You're not a, a child of Adam. You're now a child of God. In fact, he wrote these. He quotes this other author, John Swinton, in his book. He says, to be remembered is to exist and to be sustained by God. Our identity is safe in the memory of God. We are because God sustains us in his memory. In the deep fear of forgetting, it's overcome by the deeper promise of being remembered. So we're known by him. He is a shepherd that has not just laid down his life for the sheep, but he knows us. We belong to him now. It's a beautiful word even to those who struggle with dementia. You may forget him. He won't forget you. That's an incredible promise. But Jesus hasn't just come uh, to be a shepherd to serve. He's also come to bring peace. He's come to bring peace. Now, Jesus said this in his ministry. You know, in John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. And Jesus is coming to bring a peace. Now, we're thinking world peace. Messiah, prophecy, Micah 5, he's here. Hey, let's bust all the swords into plowshares, let's do it right now. But there's a deeper peace that he's bringing first. He's bringing a peace through his own laying down of his life. The act of peacemaking was on the cross. He made peace with God and man. And the fruit of his peacemaking is that now we're one with God and we're one with each other. This is the first act of peace that he's made. Paul gives word to it in Ephesians. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the cross. For he himself is our peace. Picking up that same idea. Paul is bringing forth that theology from Micah. He says, He is, he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, 
thus making peace and reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross. So Christ has come to reconcile us. He is our peacemaker. We now have peace with God. You know, people say, hey, you got peace with God? You know, particularly when people are dying, they'll often say, are you at peace with God? What he's saying is, have you been reconciled to God? Have, have your sins been atoned for? This is what it means to be at peace with God. Our sins are atoned for. That is the peace that he came to bring first. He will bring that peace, as we'll see in a moment. But first he came to bring peace. Now, I would just encourage you at this Christmas time, you're going to be with family. Whenever, whenever families get together, it can tend to be a kind of an awkward time. And the old unreconciled stuff can kind of bubble on the way up. If you're a Christian, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. You know, Jesus says, blessed are, are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. And what this means first is don't create conflict. That's, that's a good way to make peace is by not bringing conflict. Ask God for grace that you might be a peacemaker in your home when family gathers. Look at your own soul. Seek to reconcile and be at peace with all men, all women, as much as you're able. You be the one in the family that is seeking. Not to be a peacekeeper, you know, wearing, you know, just trying to sweep things under the rug like Ray was praying before, but to be a peacemaker. Maybe it even begins with you apologizing for some anger you've held or maybe some off-color thing you said. But be a peacemaker in your family. And then the last thing I'll say about this passage, and I'll let you go, is simply this. That Jesus came to give us a true hope for and a comprehensive peace. Jesus has come to give us a foundation to really believe that one day there will be peace on earth. And, and I say that, uh, you know, because in Micah's day, uh, this promise was given to them on the verge of war. So they had to wait, right? They didn't see the peace. They had to wait for it. It would be hundreds of years before this Messiah would come. We're kind of in a similar situation. We too are waiting. He's come once, which establishes for us the reality that he'll come again. He has come once, and he has brought a good peace between God and us and with one another. But he will bring that peace over all the nations. In fact, Micah speaks about it in chapter 4. He says, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Can you imagine that? No more war college. No more learning of war. No more armaments. No more threats. There will be a peace that comes when Christ returns. That is where I hope to be. That's what Advent's about. Advent means coming. We are anticipating Him coming again. Can you long for me with that? You know, some of the distractive nature of Christmas is just the fun that we have and the good things we enjoy. I want to highlight that and enjoy that with you. But I don't want it to distract me that this time of the year, the church has long celebrated this as part of the church calendar because the church knows, we know that we lose sight of the future. And the fact that he has come one time is to remind us that he will come again and he'll bring a peace. Your hope is not in a change in government. Your hope is not in better health next year. Your hope is not in a more, a more congenial culture. Your hope is squarely resting on the one to come who will bring all peace 
to all people one day. Let's long for that. Let's hunger for that. If you don't have any longing for that, then ask for the desire to desire it. Just ask him for it. Let's take a moment now and just in silence, uh, this might be a time where you repent of sin or the ambivalence you've had to this Messiah. Or maybe it's a time of giving thanks. Maybe a time if you're not a Christian and you're wondering about these things that you just ask God. God, if you are who he has said you are, then open my eyes to your glory. Just ask him. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.